0: This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Today's scripture is Psalm 124, which can be found on page 517 in the pew Bibles around you. Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us, then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth.
1: Good morning. Hey, my name is Ricky. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. So glad you're with us this morning. Hey, let me remind you, the last couple of weeks, we've been sharing with you our desires to move to one service. That begins next Sunday. So next Sunday, we'll have one Sunday service beginning at uh, 10 AM. So 10 AM next Sunday. uh, If you show up at 1030, uh, you'll be a little late. So come back next Sunday at 10 AM. We'll have one service. And then you should have gotten this handout on your way in. So, moving to one Sunday service actually doesn't make things easier for our staff or for our volunteers. It's actually, it makes things a little bit trickier in many ways. Uh, It makes it a little harder. Um, So, we need some of your help, Um, specifically in our Redeemer Kids classrooms. uh, Being in one service means that those who serve in Redeemer Kids teaching our children won't be able to attend a service for that Sunday, which means we're opening up that rotation to be a little longer which means we need some more volunteers to help fill in those classrooms so we can have a longer rotation. We think that'll be a little healthier, more sustainable uh, for that team. So if you can just scan that QR code, sign up for Redeemer Kids, that'd be awesome. And um, man, we just think it'd be really great for us. Uh, Right now, the numbers are such that we can all gather in one Sunday service. I think in this season, it'd be really great for us all to be worshiping each Sunday all together. No promises for how long that lasts. If we begin to grow again and need to go back to two services, then we'll respond that way and do that at that time. But I think we'll stick with one service as long as we can. Um, So that's the announcement. Don't forget, put that down next Sunday, 10 a.m. And uh, so now we're going to transition the next few weeks. uh, We're going to be walking through the Psalms through the next month or so. Um, So as we transition to this uh, Psalm 124, will you join me as I pray for us? So, Father, at the end of this psalm, uh, it's declared, "It's declared that you are the creator of the heavens and earth." So, like, there's just magnificent, magnificent statement that you are the creator. We, we then look up and see the clouds and the stars and all that you've created. But what's what's interesting about this passage is it is it seems to actually, like, that's not the focus of it. The focus of this psalm is the other direction, the turbulent history. It's like you you do an about face and look at the darkness, the difficulty, the hardships, the places of tension in our souls, the places of fears, the trauma that we've experienced in our lives. And it's in that that you are our help. It's in that that we see you acting. It's not just in creation. It's actually in our own stories that we see you at work. Like if we took a magnifying glass, we would see amidst the monsters, amidst the floods, uh, amidst all these different turbulent things in our life, that you are at work. So God, I pray in this, this next 45 minutes or so that you are glorified. Like that's the whole point of this psalm is just to praise and glorify and lift up your name, that you would be enthroned on our hearts, that you'd be enthroned on our lips, and that we would acknowledge that you are our Lord, our rescuer, our only hope, our only chance of survival. So God, would you be glorified in these words? Would you be glorified through this psalm? Would you be glorified by us in this next moment? We pray that in your glorious name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so the first few lines of this psalm describe God as for us. It, it actually names that twice, that God is for us. And then the last line of this psalm says that our help is in the name of the Lord. So it starts off saying twice that God's for us, he's for us, and then ends by saying that he's also our help. Now, I'm quite confident that we can read something like this from God's Word on a Sunday, and I can announce it, that the Lord is our help from this pulpit with confidence, and all of us in this room can like give assent to that. We can nod our heads with that. We can write it in our notepads and agree with it, but no sooner than I leave this stage and engage one of you in a conversation, and ask what God's doing in your world, like what's, what's new in your world, and you begin to share about the struggles in your marriage, the tragedy of your family history, the no doubt career disappointments that you've been walking through, the fallout that you've had with some of your friendships, the latest disappointment uh, or your like your, your pessimistic view or retelling of the latest world event. And then all of a sudden there's resistance to accepting that God actually is for you, that he actually is your help. See, m- many of us in this room listen to a phrase like this, that God is... It is our help. Our help is in the name of the Lord. And we think that's, that's nice. That's actually pretty inspirational. It's, it's encouraging. It's nice. Phrases like this get stitched into pillows and set in like chairs at grandma's house. Like that's one of those kinds of phrases in the Bible, right? And, and, and like we could encourage somebody with this from a distance without even knowing what, what on earth is going on in their life. But when faced with disappointment when faced with, like, missed expectations, when faced with tragedy and loss and fear, we're tempted to respond to something like this by saying, listen, I understand that you may think God is for you. He may even possibly be for someone else. But where do you get this hour? Keep the hour out of it. Uh, How do you explain? How are you so sure that God is for me? And it's right there that I'm often thrusted into this spot of being God's defender. I'm like put in this position where I'm like, I'm feeling like I have to defend God. And one pastor says it's in these moments when pastors are expected to explain God to his disappointed clients. Like I'm thrust into this role of clerk in the complaints department of humanity, and, and ask to like trace down all the bad service that they're, they're getting, listen sympathetically to aggrieved, like uh, aggravated patrons, and try to put right all the mistakes. And I can apologize for the rudeness of the management. But if I accept this position, if I try to play that role, then I've gravely misunderstood my position. See, God doesn't need me to be his defender. God doesn't need me to be his press secretary trying to explain to everyone that what you heard him say isn't actually what he meant, that wasn't the context of the situation. I know you're quoting him about what he said to Job or Paul, but that's actually not what he meant there. It wasn't actually supposed to be that hard. It's not what they meant. No, I'm not called to do that. And if you're a Christian, you're not called to apologize for God either. Your calling, rather, is one of witness, declaring who God is is. It's witnessing, it's praising, it's declaring. And this is what Psalm 124 is all about. It's all about declaring the kind of God that we have in the midst of our troubled circumstances. It's in the midst of our troubled circumstances. This wants to tell you this is the kind of God he is. And what's so powerful about this Psalm is it actually has no interest in arguing with you. It, it, It doesn't try to explain God's help. It just simply states it as fact. Actually, it sings it. It praises his name, that that is who he is. This song announces vibrantly and uh, confidently that it it actually like rearranges the way that we approach it. it. It like changes our approach. It completely changes the way we come to it. You see, our tendency is to question the legitimacy of this kind of claim. Our posture is so often to take circumstances from our life and use it as evidence to actually prove that that's not true, uh, to take these things against it because we've experienced some discomfort in our lives. We often think that, um, that if this psalm were true, that we wouldn't have experienced all the hardships that we've experienced over the past year or over the past decade or whatever. But this psalm confronts our approach. It, it actually changes our posture and cynicism that we bring so we're no longer asking the question, how do you explain that God is my help in the midst of my problems? It takes that question that no doubt some of us have in this room and it, it puts it on its head. It's, it, it's not the right question to ask. Instead, it forces us to face the data, the data that God is real hope for his people, So, we must ask a different question. A real question like How does it happen that there are people praising God with such confidence like this? How does that even happen? How does it happen that there are people confidently declaring that God is their only hope, that He is their help in the midst of their difficulties? This psalm is data that there have been people using these words as their song and have made sense of their experience with God with these words. That's true. So what do you do with that testimony? Like, what do you do with this kind of witness in front of us? It makes us ask questions like, how am I supposed to praise you here then, God? Like, how how am I supposed to sing of your wonders in the midst of my situation? So with that in front of us, here's what we're going to see as we walk through this Psalm. When you experience God as your help, when you see that he's demonstrated his faithfulness to his people in the past and see how he's helped you in your past, you must acknowledge, you have to admit, you have to declare that you are also completely dependent on him for your survival. When you experience God as your help, What makes this so genuine and powerful and life-changing is the confessions that unless he is this for you, you will not survive. So let's jump into Psalm 124. If you've closed your Bible, that's page uh, 517. So turn to page 517 in your black hardback Bible, Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have been, then we would have been swallowed up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. And what we see in verse one through two is that God's help is both powerful and contagious. Contagious. You see, when your family goes on a road trip, no doubt you're singing those goofy road trip songs to pass the time. Well, Israel sang these kinds of songs. Israel traveling to Jerusalem, they would often travel to Jerusalem year after year, and they would sing this song while they traveled. Imagine a group of people traveling to Jerusalem, and one of the men shouts out, if it had not been God on our side, and then he invites everyone to join in with him, If it had not been God on our side and then they continue on with this song and it's like an anthem for them, they would sing this out to God and sing about his powerful acts in their lives. See, God's help is not a private act. It's not a private experience. It's not an exception that happens to isolated people or people you just read about in books that you don't really know. It actually is a common, normal, natural thing that the people of God experience and experience together together. So how does God help us? God's help is described in two vivid illustrations or pictures in this psalm. First, we see that God's people were in danger of being swallowed up alive. And then secondly, we see that they were in danger of being drowned by a flood. Okay, so this first picture that we see in this psalm is that of an enormous beast or like a sea monster or something like that, swallowing them whole and alive. Now, no one's ever seen a dragon, but they always show up in movies, in songs, in fairy tales, in stories, because they are very much real. Everyone knows that dragons are real because they're the projections of our greatest fears. They're the projections of the the fears that we carry around us. They are the scenarios and the horrible looming constructions of all the what ifs and all the threats that we carry around with us that play out in our minds. And just as a peasant is like no match for a huge dragon with its thick skin, with its fiery mouth, with its lashing and cutting tail, insatiable greed and lust, we are no match. We are no match. That's the point here. You're no match for this. We are completely and fully destroyed as thoroughly as if something were to swallow and gobble you up whole. That's the point of this. You are swallowed up whole and alive and your enemies, your fears, your struggles, your sin is like a giant beast and you have no chance of killing it or getting away or surviving. The second picture is that of a flash flood. The enemies, your enemies now are compared to that of a surging and raging river that brings sudden, sudden disaster. Language here reminds us of Isaiah 8.5, where God brings judgment through a massive invasion of the Assyrian army. And How does God describe this surprise attack? the Euphrates River overflowing its banks and flooding the whole land of Israel. So he brings that picture to our minds. You see, there's no escaping this kind of flash flood. One minute you're well, you're happy, the sun is shining, the sky is blue, you're making plans for the future, everything seems hunky-dory. The next minute, huge storms roll in, sheets of water are dropped on you, and your entire world is changed. You're disarranged by catastrophe. And think of what a flash flood does. The text says that we would have been swept or that it would have swept them away. Have you ever been in the ocean and felt the, like the undercurrent? Like how you're standing there and you feel that, uh, you know, the, the, the undercurrent is pulling you away. You can barely walk, let alone run away. Imagine a flash flood just sweeping you away. You have no chance of standing, let alone running away from it. Then it says, the torrent would have gone over us. So now... So once you're swept away, now you can't even keep your head above water. You're, you're drowned. You're swept away and now you're drowned. If, if God had not delivered them, they would have been destroyed suddenly, swiftly, pulled away, and they would have plunged under the water, drowned, leaving absolutely no trace. That's the picture here. When have you experienced that kind of storm in your life? that kind of flood. This instant out of nowhere, you didn't see it coming. It was a blind side and you felt swept away. And like the water going over your face and you're reaching up for breaths. It was a situation that caught you off guard and you struggled to keep your head above water. Here the Psalm tells us that there was certain doom, but somehow, some way, they've escaped the enormous dragon that could have swallowed them whole some way they've escaped the flash flood that was sure to sweep them away and take them down. It's not possible, the Psalm says. It's not possible that the Lord was not for them. It, it was certain doom. It's not possible that God wasn't for them, but somehow they've escaped. He was acting for them, and so it can never be said that the enemies would destroy them. God is our help. And we're not talking about a hangnail here, right? Right? Like we're not talking about like a momentary like headache. We're not talking about like bumps in the road. We're not even talking about like um, that. Like we're not singing about God paving a smooth road here and not allowing difficulty and hardship and pain and suffering in your life. No, we're singing about and witnessing as though we are going through the worst of it. Through the worst of it, God is there acting and rescuing the dragon's mouth, the flood's torrent, and yet we're still intact. We're still whole. We haven't drowned. God doesn't abandon. He helps. And the final strength is not the dragon, it's not the flood, but in God who, verse 6, has not given us away. Or I like how the message puts it. He didn't go off and leave us. <laughs> he didn't just go off and leave us. Like, like as if he's like glancing at us and going, oh, that's too much work. Or uh, they're in too big of a mess. I'll just go off and leave them. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't abandon us. He moves towards us. He moves toward you. What a testimony of God's love and his power and his commitment to his people. What, What promises does he hold for you? Now, of course, you can choose to sidestep this. Like, this is a monstrous promise for his people. But of course you can sidestep this. Of course you can sidestep this rather easily. See, we can choose to avoid this promise for his people, and and frankly, with some, some good reason. Like, we all know that if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is, right? If something sounds like too big of a promise, if somebody is too animated about something, if they're too excited about something, instantly we respond with enthusiasm with a bit of cynicism, right? Like how many times have you been overpromised something extravagant only to be let down? It's the late night like infomercial with that gadget that you buy at the last minute. You shows up, you use it one time, it's broken. Or the kid who's begging for the toy, it's the toy of the year, it'll complete them, they'll be happy forever, and within a week or two, it's at the bottom of the toy box. It's the politician who's saying the things that tickle your ear because he knows that you want that, but it's really just to get you to vote for him so that he can do what he wants. It's the TV commercials telling you that you should respond with enthusiasm to what they're selling. It's the news outlets who are giving you half-truths or twisted truths so that you would toe a line and buy into what they're saying. Everyone is speaking on behalf of a product. They're being prayed to read words that they didn't write so that you'll respond with enthusiasm and buy what they're selling. And all of this is training us to keep a distance any time someone would speak with passion and excitement for fear that they would manipulate, manipulate us again. And I get it. Like none of us in this room wanna get duped. All of us wanna keep a distance from those things. And right now we're tempted to respond, <clears throat> what are you selling? Like how much did they pay you to say that? And the only cure for that kind of cynicism, that kind of distancing is to just bring it out in the open. The only cure for that kind of, that distancing, that kind of cynicism is to bring it out in the open and actually like deal with it. If left to work behind the scenes, it'll create this kind of parasitic uh, work on our faith that leaves us hopeless and anemic to love. It's far better to bring these questions, these doubts and your struggles out into the open and share them with God himself. And here's the thing, he's not offended by that. Like God isn't thrown off with those questions. Like God isn't like spun up because you had some doubts or some questions. Like he isn't caught off guard. He actually loves it when you bring those to him. He actually invites you to bring those things. Perhaps this morning is an opportunity for you in faith actually to bring those out to Him. A step of faith for you this morning would be to bring your doubts, to bring your questions, to bring your resistance to Him and ask Him to speak to that, to orient that. Your questions, your doubts, your tendency to withdraw, actually bringing it to Him so that He can help you sort that out. Man, this is exactly why I love when we preach through the Psalms. The psalms are like a record of the fight of faith from faithful believers. Rather than keeping their questions and doubts kind of all bottled up in a neat container, these psalms act as places where they bring the difficulty of life, the hard road of following God out into the open and deal with it before God. They're raw. They engage the full range of the human emotion. These psalms give us language then to help us express our own struggles, our own doubts, our own desires, our own. Hopes to God Himself. If you read through your Bible, by the time we get to the Psalms, then, in the story of Scripture, there are these two competing realities that grab our attention. We're we're faced with this promise from God and this horrible situation that the Israelites find themselves in. On the one hand, There's the fact that God promises his people through Abraham that he's going to make a great nation and bless the world through him. And then as you go through the line, you see that he doubles down and and progresses into this promise to David that he would send a son that would reign over, uh, be a king forever, that would redeem humanity, rescue them and save them from all their iniquities. He makes this promise to Israel. Then on the other hand, there's the fact that Israel is deeply stuck in their idolatry and sin. Like they just can't get it together. They can't follow him as he has called them to. They're God's chosen people, but they don't listen to him. Um, They don't long for him. And so they walk through judgment in the form of armies coming in and overtaking them and carrying them into exile. So the stage is set as we come to the 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 songs with these two competing realities that go head to head. This God, God's promises for greatness and redemption, and they're surrounded by turmoil and captivity. God says one thing, but they're experiencing a very different reality. And that isn't too different from us. Eventually, these two competing realities lead to one central question: Is God going to keep his promises? Like, is God going to come through? Is he going to actually deliver on what he said? Is he going to rescue them? Is he going to be their help? How often are we in that spot? Like, that's our world. This psalm says God is for you. He's your help. But then all of us have this competing reality. It doesn't feel true. I'm going through this. This seems really hard in my life. I don't like this. And we're stuck in this tension between these two realities, And then we have to navigate between those. Are we gonna trust God? Are we going to rely on him? What do we believe? Do we rely on ourselves or put our trust in him? And I think Psalm 124 meets this head on. This Psalm, I believe, can convince us of its honesty with how you and I experience real life. This psalm was used as a worship song for the people of God as they journeyed to Jerusalem from exile. So imagine all the people of Jerusalem singing this song of God's protection as they came out of a horrible, horrible situation in exile, coming to Jerusalem, singing of his praises, They're coming out of captivity and exile. In fact, this song was sung each year by the people of God as they journeyed up to Jerusalem for their yearly Passover and celebration and sacrifices. It functioned as this anthem of who God is for them. Despite the highs, despite the lows, all of these things, their God alone has demonstrated his steadfast love to help them. But they did not ignore the hardships. It, it wasn't covering it up. It wasn't like doling the things that happened. They didn't cover those things up. They didn't sweep them under the rug. They simply state that in the midst of the dragons and the floods of their life, it was God, who, God alone who gave them hope and eventually rescued them. And this testimony must be dealt with. It has to be dealt with us in this room before we were. You know, before we return to our like complaining and discontentedness and all these other things that we want to shove in the way, we actually have to deal with this testimony. It offers us something that must be accounted for that I think is way more interesting, way more compelling, way more substantial than all the other things that we hear throughout the day. The people who know this, this psalm in their lives, those who have tested it and used it, those who have actually sung these words into their own hearts in the midst of struggle and uh, troubling times through difficulty and hard times in their life, those who have sung this through the good times and the bad times, those people tell us that this is true. Those people tell us this is credible. They tell us that when difficult seasons come, God is very much our help. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength. He is very, very, very present in our help, in our trouble. He is a present help in trouble. Therefore, we don't have to fear. Though the earth gives way, though it feels like everything's crumbling around us, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though everything goes into just destruction and evil around us, though the waters roar, all the scary things around us roar and foam, the mountains tremble at its swelling. God is a present help in trouble. God is our help in an ever present time of need. So faced with that kind of testimony, faced with this, we ask the question, how are we supposed to praise you here? Like faced with that kind of declaration and witness, how do we sing of of God's help here in our situation? I mean, I think it means that we ought to, along with the psalmist, give witness to the ways that he's helped us in the past. Like that's what this psalm is all about. How do we give witness and praise his name for what he's already done for us? I think that's what the psalmist is doing in verse six. He says, blessed be the Lord, or to say it another way, may the Lord be blessed. He's saying, I want the Lord to be blessed with my praises. I want him to be enriched by the things that I say about what he's done for me. Uh, would he be better known and made famous to a watching world for all the things that he's done for me? I want God to be seen as more beautiful by other people because of my praises. What has he done? Into verse six. He has not given us as prey to their teeth. He hasn't given us as prey to their teeth. As Christians, we live a risky and dangerous, hazardous life day in and day out. Every single day is perilous in the life of a Christian. Every single day, I put faith on the line. In a world where everything is weighed and measured and explained and quantified and controlled. In a world where um, if you're going to get ahead, you've got to use force. You've got to get yours while you can. In a world where what makes you feel most good inside, most fulfilled, most comfortable, most, you know, most whatever is the most important thing. Like you do you. In that kind of world, I persist in making God the center of my life. The God whom Isaiah says, no ear has seen no ear has perceived, no eye has seen. No one knows the will. We can't probe into his will. You see, the world would equate this with fairy tales and leprechauns. It's a risk. It's a risk to live this way. And we put faith on the line every day, but we also put hope on the line every day. I put hope on the line because I don't see everything. I see very limited. i I, I've got parts of the puzzle, but there's whole sections of the puzzle of my life I do not understand. I don't get it. Like, I, I don't imagine I'll understand it all in this life. Like, I've stopped asking God some questions because I, I don't imagine he's gonna give me the answers to a lot of things that have happened. I'm confident I'll never be able to fill it all in. I won't be surprised when in a couple of years, even looking back on the last couple of years, that I'll see blind spots and I'll see mistakes or things I was just, like, unaware of. I don't know one thing about the future. I don't know what this next hour holds, let alone this next year holds for us. Later today, I may be confronted by sickness, accident, another world catastrophe. Who knows what the future holds for you and for me, for those I love, for our church, for our city, for our nation. I'm very, very, very much ignorant about all of this. Before the day ends, I could deal with death, pain, loss, the loss of a friend, who knows what stands in front of me. Thank God my obedience and submission to God does not require anything more than me saying that I believe that God will accomplish his will and that I will choose to then cheerfully and joyfully submit under it and persist in living with a hope that nothing will separate me from his love and that's all I need to confess. And the world sees this as a foolish hope. But I hold on, and this is risky, that this is my only hope. We live a risky, dangerous life. But we also put love on the line. Trust me, there's nothing, there's nothing I'm less good at than love. Like, ask my wife. There's nothing I'm less good at I'm good at accomplishing things. If you need me to do something, if you need something done, call me up, I'll do it for you. I'll close all the loops, I'll accomplish it, I'll do it better than you asked me to do. I'm really good at knocking things out of the park. I'm way better at getting ahead in competition than I am at loving. Uh, I'd much rather spend my time trying to figure out a problem and helping us move forward or arguing to get my own way uh, or all those kinds of things than trying to figure out how to love well. Every single day in my marriage, though, in my parenting, in my pastoring, as a neighbor, I have to choose to set all of that aside. Like I have to choose to put that aside, to set aside the things that I naturally gravitate toward, the things that I think I'm best at, and instead pursue loving, or maybe a better way of saying it would be like clumsily loving somehow. I have to set those things aside, things aside to pursue loving. Why? because Christ has loved me. How did he love me? He didn't equate equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but instead humbled himself even to the point of death so that he could rescue me. So every single day my aim is to ask him to strengthen me by faith to do the same. And the world talks about love, but we know that God alone is love. And every day I'm given opportunities to show this love. And all of this is dangerous. Like all of this is risky stuff. This, this is dangerous, risky work. And don't miss this. This is not the work of a pastor. Like this is the work of everyday, ordinary Christians. This is the work of all of us, ordinary day in, day out Christians. If you are a Christian, every single day of your life is at danger, is at risk, living close to the dragon's mouth and the water's edge. That is your task. However, this psalm isn't even really about that. Like it, it's got a lot of that in there, but that's really not the focus of this psalm. That's merely the setting. That's assumed. That's just the set. that's just the context. The whole point of this psalm is about God as our help. Look at verse six. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. The fundamental hope that we see here is that our help is in the name of the Lord. Our help is in the name of the Lord. You may may be in situations where you feel like a helpless rabbit, like that you're like surrounded by snarling dogs. You see the teeth, The fowler has snuck up around you or behind you and he's got the net and he's thrown the net over you. You may feel like you're trapped, like you're under a net in your life or you may have gone through those kinds of situations. You are caught and it seems like there's no way out. It seems like there's certain doom. There seems like no conceivable way out. And yet this says that the hope is that God will rescue you. The hope of this Psalm is that all of a sudden the snare breaks and you escape. Like, unaccountably, you're free. It doesn't explain it, it just says you're free. It looked like you were trapped, and all of a sudden, you're out. God intervenes in a coordinated attack and foils these plans and helps you escape. That's the point of this. You don't just get away, though. God breaks the snare. It's like a certain escape. You can count on it. What should our response be to that kind of rescue? God is blessed. Our help is in the strong name of our God. This is how God longs for us to sing about him and what he's done in our lives. One author says that Christians are not fussy moralists who cluck their tongues over a world going to hell. Christians are people who praise God who is on our side. Christians are not pious pretenders in the midst of a decadent culture, Christians are robust witnesses to the God who is our help. Christians are not not fatigued outcasts who carry righteousness as a burden in a world where the wicked flourish. Christians are people who sing, blessed be God, he didn't abandon us defenseless. That is what we ought to be declaring that God doesn't leave us alone. He moves towards us. He is our help. And then the last sentence it just declares it again. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. So, the God who put the stars in the sky, the God who declared the heavens, the God who created everything, he created the, he spoke the cosmos into existence, the one who formed the earth, the one who like knit you in your mother's womb, that God, that God holds up the whole universe by the word of his power, that God is your help. That kind of power, that kind of strength is your help. And then by his name, it says. By his name. What does that mean? It means that all the attributes of the Lord are coming to your aid. Think of that. Think of all of the attributes of God himself, the things that make God, God, his love, his power, his might, his righteousness, his uh, faithfulness, his steadfastness. It says here, they're pointed to you. Like they're directed in your, toward you for your good, for your rescuing. They're aimed toward you by his name. He's coming to your rescue. God directs all these attributes toward rescuing you. Imagine it, the God who created everything and sustains everything, also sees you in your struggles and difficulties and is involved in the like the small ordinary struggles of very ordinary people. He is, he sees you, he moves toward you, and his love is directed toward you. How do we respond? How do we respond to that kind of love and help from our God? I think real simply, I think we should take notes from this psalm and do what it does. I think we should remember and I think we should praise him for it. I think we should remember and praise him for it. I think we should do what this psalm does I think it looks like us remembering all the ways that God has rescued us, the way that God has moved towards, the way that God has worked in our story to actually save us, to rescue us. There's there's situations in all of our lives that you can't account for and God broke the snare. Or, Or maybe some of you right now feel like you're taking on water. No doubt with this many people in a room, there's some of you who feel like you're in crisis mode, like you're taking on water, you're being swept away right now. Like there's a situation or some kind of circumstance that you're going through where you feel like you're, you're in the midst of it right now. How do you praise God now? How do you strengthen your faith right now so that you can praise his name even in the midst of difficulty? I think it's the same. Think back to the ways that God has worked in your life. Here's my encouragement right now here in a little bit during communion, but especially later this afternoon, would you like block off a little bit of time and think back on the last year, the last couple of years, or maybe the last decade, and think of a couple of moments where God rescued you. Like oftentimes when we're in the midst of something, like things feel like Foggy, You can't make what's, you know, right side up. You can't figure out like this person's doing this. This person got sick. And then this person came in and you got all these data points and scrambled. Oftentimes in the moment, you can't make sense of what's going on. But it's often in the following year or years down the road, when you look back and you ask God, what were you doing there? Like asking him those questions. What were you doing there? Why did this happen? Asking him these kinds of questions why did this person show up at this time? Why did I get sick? What were, did, what were you sowing in me? What were you teaching me? What did I come away with that I didn't, couldn't have come away with uh, without that? And then somehow you rescued me from there. It's almost like you gave me gifts in that season and I didn't even fall or succumb to the consequences of that season. Take some time and think through those. Ask him to make sense of those, to connect dots for you, and then praise him for what he's done. Glory in what he's done. Say that he is your help, that he is your rescuer. Glory in his name, that he alone rescued you in that or you wouldn't have survived. And then most certainly, one of the most powerful things we can remember that God has rescued us from is death itself, right? Like if you're a Christian, uh, an easy thing to think back to is the fact that God has rescued you from sin and death itself, but like God hasn't left you alone. The the scriptures say that we are enemies of God. We aren't just like victims, right? We aren't just victims of the dragon or the flood. The scripture actually says that we were the ones victimizing. It's not just that, we are, that we're like dished the difficult or hard or sinful things. We actually dish it out to other people. We're perpetrators and that we're actually enemies of God himself. So even more than being a victim or even more in need of help, God came and moved toward us as his enemies. He came toward us in Christ. Jesus came in the flesh to live a perfect life that we couldn't live and then die for those who are enemies of his so that we could be even rescued out of being against him, out of our own sin to actually be redeemed and brought into life with him. That's an amazing thing to remember and glory him over. And that's exactly what we do each and every week when we celebrate communion. When we celebrate communion, that is us celebrating and remembering that truth, that reality, our only hope, and declaring to him that this is our only hope, that you would move toward us in our greatest need and rescue us, that you are our help. The way we celebrate communion, if that's your declaration, if that's your hope this morning, we tear a piece of bread and we dip it in the cup, Uh, The glass is juice and the stoneware is wine. We'll have servers here in the front and the middle on both sides of the balcony. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, said, I am breaking my body in order to rescue you. So when you get together, remember this. Remember what I've done for you and give glory to your God who doesn't miss you. He isn't overlooking you. He sees you where you are and moves toward you. Man, if that's your hope this morning, come and celebrate communion with us. If that's not your hope this morning, we implore you. Like I encourage you, I invite you to put your faith and hope in his strong name, in his name, his strong and loving, powerful name. It's in his name that your help is found. He is faithful. He is loving. He is righteous. He is good. He is powerful enough. He is, he's worth it giving your life to. And that looks like reaching out your hand in need of help so that he can grab you and lift you out of where you're at. That's what it looks like to put your faith in Jesus. It doesn't look like cleaning yourself up, not fixing yourself. We've already seen you're no match for the dragon. You can't get away from the flood. You're dead in the water. God came all the way to pull you out of that and to save you. Man, if that's what you want to do this morning, if you want to put your faith in Jesus, we'll have people uh, up in the front or by our exits that would love to pray that over you and share with you what that would look like for you to put your faith in Jesus. Uh, But don't come and take communion if that's not your hope. If that's not what you're putting your faith in, uh, this meal is just for those who see Jesus alone as their only hope for survival. Let me pray for us and then we'll come and respond. So Father God, we glory in you. We lift you up. We, we actually name reality this morning. How many times in our lives do we put ourselves in a spot where we frantically wonder how we're gonna get out of this situation or that situation? How is this going to move forward? How is this going to work out? <clears throat> I know no other way of living life where I'm not freaking out or not stuck or dominated than trusting you. Like you are better. You are everything. We can trust you and we glory in you that you that you are a rescuer. You are our help in the times when we're in trouble. So God, for those who are in the midst of walking through a difficult time now, God, would you right now, even in taking communion, even in chewing on this, that you would... Um, that you administer to them, remind them of your goodness, that you see them, that you love them, that you're for them, and that you will rescue them. And then God, for the rest of us, would you store this up in us? Because we will go through it again. We'll go through the ringer again, whether that be later today, next week, next year. Would you store this deep into us so that when we walk through difficulties, the declaration of our tongue, like we don't remove ourselves from you, we actually lean into you. We ask you for help. We rely on your saving work. God, you are good. We love you. So as we come and take communion, uh, we thank you for the sacrifice that you've made in Jesus so that we can, so we can be close to you, so that we can have access to you. Thank you in your name. Amen.